So, um, a perfect farm, finding the perfect farm. It's um, actually, Alan, why don't you share with them your saying about a perfect farm? Do you remember it? Oh, brother. You're going to have to remind me. All right, me every day. I'll remind Alan of his saying. A perfect farm. It, he often uses the saying about there is none righteous, no, not one. <laughs> well, that's what, the same way when it comes to a perfect farm. Um, we have concluded that on this earth, the land, God cursed the earth for a reason. So a perfect farm is not, doesn't exist. However, there are a lot of things that we can do when looking for land or trying to figure out how to best use our land that can really save us in the long run. Um, we've gone through, we went through about uh, five, four to five years of looking for farmland before we found the land that we were actually that the Lord opened up and that we were actually willing to, willing to go with. Um, and during those four to five years, we learned a lot about what to look for, how to look for it, when to look for it, tools that can save you time looking for it. Um, because there's one thing to just jump into it and then be like, wow, I really wish this hadn't happened. And I really thought about actually what I was getting into. Um, I mean, obviously, you can think about it so long that you overthink it, and then nothing ever happens. But there, there's, a, there's a lot of really good... There's this, so basically what we're doing in this presentation is going over the checklist that, that we used in looking for our land and that we found really helpful in helping us navigate because it can get pretty tricky when you're trying to compare and... Yeah. Yes? So, can we go to the next one? Is it... Okay, so this looks nice, and there are things about land that... This looks, this is our, this is our old farm. So this is our first, this is our prototype experiment. And it looks pretty, looks pretty great on the surface, doesn't it? Right, uh, but underneath you found things like this. And this was actually all rock that we hand removed from our fields. Like that. Yeah, little by little, inch by inch. You, remember, you know how the Great Wall of China was built? Anyways. Um, something like this, I guess. But the thing is, is that we want to help prevent you from making these types of mistakes. Going in, buying a lot of land, and then finding out that it doesn't have what you want. Yeah, I mean, not that this was a mistake. This was land that our folks purchased when we moved to Oklahoma. Just two acres. My folks never dreamed that they would farm, maybe have a garden, but never farm. And so thinking about what kind of land was not on their radar. It was just this nice little country piece of land, two acres, perfect place to bring a house. But they didn't realize that the place only has like seven inches of topsoil. And then you've got this bedrock limestone. So even though the top might look great, just a few inches below the surface could be not great at all. So these are things to, to we're going to walk through to help you kind of go into it with your eyes open. So we're going to look at four points, okay? Quantity, location, land, resources, internet tools, and on-site test, okay? So quantity, what do you need, okay? So for a small scale... Do you want to tell them this is our farm? Oh, yeah, this is actually an aerial view of our farm before we purchased it. Aerial satellite, yeah. which I guess is aerial. Anyways, um, so this is kind of the scale that we see 
So for a country house with a family garden and fruit trees, one to five acres is probably sufficient. If you're going to do a small market garden to sell produce, five to 20 acres is what you're probably going to be wanting to look for. Anything uh, 20 to tw uh, 50 acres, a large market farm. And there are some of those, actually there's some really large market farms. 50 acres, that's a lot of vegetables. And then 100 plus acres uh, monocrop. Not necessarily though, we were out in California and we visited a farm called Ratto Brothers and they're a mixed vegetable production where they grow a thousand acres of mixed vegetables. It's amazing. It's crazy, but it's not exactly small. I mean, they send their product to Japan. Yeah. They're, so, they're yeah. doing a lot of good work, but it doesn't just because you have a lot of acreage doesn't mean you can't do mixed vegetable. That, that's right, what they're right, doing. Right, right. I, I just wanted to point that out there. So, but like we're definitely within the five to 20 acre. That's what we're, we're shooting for here. Okay. <laughs> Location. Where should it be? Whirlpool galaxy, Aubrey. <laughs> Yeah. You want to take Are this you one? want me to talk about it? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Location. Where should it be? As we talked about earlier, Earth is a good idea. Um, thinking about access, I know Larry and Michelle briefly touched on this uh, a little bit as well. How far are you from an urban area? Because you have to think if you're doing it for market, you're going to have customers. So how far are you from a potential customer base? Are there passable roads all times of the years? Um, do you have access to utilities or does it need to be off the grid? Do you have cell service? What are your internet options? Especially if you're doing online marketing. That's a biggie. Yeah, internet is a really big thing for us. It's kind of funny because with our new place, um, they didn't think we could get the local internet in that area. And in fact, my mom called them and asked them and they're like, no, sorry, we don't provide there. And so she just... I was like, okay, they don't provide there. So we didn't have a phone and we didn't have internet. And um, we did have cell service on certain parts of the property. So we were using our um, hotspots hot to get our internet. Well, that <laughs> quickly realized that was not sustainable for us because between doing the farm and then the projects that I'm involved with and the projects that my mom is involved with and my dad works remotely sometimes, uh, the data was just like gone and so we're just like oh man what do we do so we had some guys that do satellite internet not satellite um dish internet come in not dish as in dish but like they use a dish to get internet not a you know a dish and so um they get out there and they get in their big lift type crane thing and they're like way up and they're like nope uh boy, you know, we really should be getting some connection here. That's kind of strange. Like, right over there, there should be something that we're getting access to. And so the guy down on the ground calls headquarters, and he's like, hey, we've got this pointed right. Why aren't we seeing anything? And they're like, oh, well, we just turned that off because no one ever used it. And he's like, do you have plans of turning it back on? No. Well, sorry, guys, the dish isn't going to be an option. And so we're just like, oh, boy. I'm glad that wasn't an option because he was way up there where he would have to reach. And I'm like, so we, we have to put a dish way up there? He's like, yeah, at least 80 feet. I'm like, we have to build a tower on this place. <laughs> so, you know, um, well, my dad, he's a wonderful man. He's like, you know what? It's never good to take no for a first answer. I'm going to call the local Internet company again and... 
talk to them again. So we called, talked to someone else that my mom didn't talk to, and talked to them and talked to them and talked to them. They're like, oh, you know what? You're just at the end of our, um, yeah, our service. So we can make this work for you. So a couple, a uh, couple weeks later, they were out there putting in the line and everything. And we were praising uh, the Lord. We were, yeah, because I was just like, oh, I just don't know. Probably need no. to move on. Internet. Internet options, yeah, that this one's very pertinent to us. I will say one thing really quick. As far as how far, your far, how far from an urban area is your farm, this is really important because sometimes we feel like we need to get out of the cities and be gone. And the reality is, is that it's clear from the spirit of prophecy that we're not supposed to live in the cities, but we're supposed to be close enough to them to reach them. And so, in my opinion people that move out beyond and are going into situations where they're just trying to self-preserve themselves, for one thing, it's a very selfish motivation. And secondly, how are they going to reach anyone for the gospel? So two big things right there. Well, it makes it really hard to market farm when you live six hours Market from farm, it's hard to be, do anything, to be an influence or anything like that. It's, anyways, it's a pet peeve. but Obviously. Um, so how far are you from p- potential markets? That's like kind of the same idea from how far from an urban area. Uh, Alan, do the toxic waste. Okay, so this is very important. Toxic waste. Are there factories near your land? What is the byproduct? Are there feedlots or chicken houses? Oil rigs or fracking rigs? Are there human waste treating facilities nearby? What are they doing to the water? What are they doing to the air? A lot of this can be resolved uh, by good observation, and that's called Google Maps. Going around, because sometimes We're these... We're going to get to that. Sometimes you can't see these places. We're, we're going to talk about that. But here, here's the thing is that do you really want to be at a place where you're smelling chicken all the time? Like not chicken as in roast chicken, but as in poop chicken type of thing. And then oil rigs and fracking rigs. It's a little bit in Oklahoma, that's a big deal. And what they're doing to the water situation and the quality, sometimes... They make mistakes, and they will can pollute an entire aquifer with salt water and contaminants. So these are things that we need to be aware of, go in with our eyes open, so that we make sure that we're not going to be affected by it. And then, of course, factories and stuff can have byproducts that they're just pushing into rivers that can contaminate aquifers. And if you're using that as your primary drinking source and irrigation source, it's a big problem. So good observation on that. Yeah, GMO crops is another thing. That can be a little harder to, to, to manage, but yes, that's a good point as well. Natural risks. So take an assessment of the natural risk of your areas. Things like flooding, drought, hail, wind, tornadoes, hurricanes, ice, snow, fire, earthquakes, mudslides, volcanoes, and of course, the meteorites. Um, these are all things that you want to um, take into consideration just so you know what you're having to deal with. Um, on, the, on our other presentation on the AutoCAD image, off to the, to the east side, there was this little tiny white box on the AutoCAD image. That's our storm shelter. We currently live in a fifth wheel and a bumper pull camper, and we do get tornadoes in our area. We had one just a couple years about five miles north of us that... About a mile wide. Yeah, a mile wide tornado. Like, so these things are real things, so we've got to think, okay, well... We've got to understand what's kind of going on around us. It's becoming, seeming to become more and more pertinent as well if you've been paying attention to the news. Um, I do have to say a funny thing about the volcanoes, though. Uh, so we all were involved in this land search. And for the first 
maybe two or three years, Mom and I were hopeful that maybe possibly we could find something that wasn't in Oklahoma. And I had my heart set on the Pacific Northwest. I love the Pacific Northwest. I, uh, there's just a lot of things. And I, so I kept looking for land in the Pacific Northwest. And compared to land prices in Oklahoma, <laughs> it's a lot different. Uh, and so it's like, boy, I just don't know how we're going to swing this one. Like, so much money. And then I was on, oh, what's that one website? Starts with a Z that you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on that one. <laughs> and uh, I found this farm just southish of Seattle, um, 20 acre farm with it's already its own orchard that had a, like a, a, an older but nice looking farmhouse on it. And it was like $150,000 for the whole thing. And I was like, Alan, Alan, look at this. Like this is and the pictures are just like, gorgeous. And I just yeah, like, so it looks like and, the, and in the picture, there was like this mountain kind of in the, in the background. And uh, Alan's like, let's do a soil web survey on that. And so I was like, okay. So we did a soil web survey. And I'm just like getting excited, like $150,000, like south of Seattle. Like this is an answer to prayer. And the soil web survey came back. What was the Volcanic soil? ash, um, like re- residium soil. I mean, it was like, hmm. I don't know, Aubrey, if I want to live this close to a volcano. Yeah, so the soil was all like volcanic soil and, and um yeah it's it's great soil but alan has this thing for living right underneath active volcanoes that he just i don't know that bothers him for some reason i thought it would have been great but anyway so there natural were other risk. reasons why we didn't get <laughs> yeah i'm sure but i was so excited and it just didn't work out so okay volcanoes sorry <laughs> yeah so um natural risk good to keep into consideration so you know what you're dealing with um, easement rights. And you're never going to eliminate all natural risk. It's just impossible. But the idea is that you want to go in with your eyes open and count the cost. Because if you have like a lot of hail or a lot of wind in an area, those are going to be additional expenses, expenses to compensate for. Um, and we're actually, we can talk a little later if anyone has questions about what we're doing as far as infrastructure to help mitigate hail on our situation because we've had issues with it. Pretty much every year. So easements and right-of-ways. Um, and this is, this is really interesting because when you're looking at land, it's not always apparent what, are, what is actually on that land. So for instance, you can be at a land and there might be, it might be completely open. There might be nothing on it, no power lines, no pipelines. But the thing is, is that they could have already requested an easement to go across that land. And the reality of the matter is, is that they might still have easement, even though they haven't yet put something in, they might still have legal easement. So it's very important to do your due diligence to know what, what is coming with that land because they're not going to advertise it. And you have to go, whether it's your county courthouse or your local government, yeah. should be able to tell you what easements are where and if they cross your land. Because you don't want to, like if there is an easement issue on that land, you could build your house right in the middle. And if it's in that easement and you didn't know about it, they will destroy your house and they won't pay you anything for it. So this is a very important thing to know. Uh, pipelines and gas lines, you might have them crossing your land. Personally, I don't really like that, or they might be coming. But the thing is, is that pipelines can be dangerous. Um, if you hit them, if you don't know they're there, 
uh, if it's a historic area that has a lot of pipelines, sometimes they don't have them marked sufficiently. And there have been several people uh, in Oklahoma that have been killed because when you hit a pipeline, it's under so much pressure, it basically vaporizes everything within a certain radius. And so these are, these are hazards that you need to think about. Um, electric lines. Is that the Okie Dig comment? Yeah, that is the Okie Dig. So um, one of the things that, that you can do, I'm not sure if it works when you're looking at land or if you have to own the land. I, I don't think it really matters, but the thing is, is that Okie Dig, it's 811. That's in Oklahoma. I'm sure it's, I don't know, Texas Dig, or I'm not sure what it, it, it actually is, but it's a number you call, and basically all the municipalities, the municipal companies, electrical, gas, they have to come out there within a certain period of time, like two days, and mark all their lines for you before you do any type of digging. And so that can be a, a great thing as well to check into. But do your due diligence. Make sure that you're clear because you don't want to run into these guys that are very wealthy and they're not going to be very nice. Resource. Necessarily. Okay. Do you want to do this one or do you want me to do it? Go for it. Okay. Resources. And a lot of us, we talked about a little bit about this before, but all land has certain resources. Um, so water, 78 gallons per minute is pretty good for a house well, but of course it's not going to be sufficient for a farm. So 20 to 25 gallons a minute is what we have here, and that's what we're thinking for, our numbers are a little different, 1.5 acres. Anyways, you remember what I said before. Rule of thumb, 15 gallons per minute per acre of irrigated land using drip tape, which is what I said, which is that lower limit. Twice that much for overhead, test for potability. This is a very important thing. It needs to be drinkable. If you're going to be using it in your wash house, especially, it has to be clean water. And uh, test for irrigation quality. And I think this is where I have this. Um, the thing is, is that I was talking to a guy, I'm not sure if he's here, but he was from Arizona. And especially in arid states, not necessarily in all arid states, but especially in arid states, you can be dealing with um, sodium in the water and potentially sodium at levels that really can't be compensated for by any type of treatment. So this is one thing you need to take into consideration when you are looking for land. Um, and we, we recommend, I'm not sure if we're going to get to that here or not, but we would definitely recommend if, if, it's, if you have land and it doesn't have a well that's producing the water that you want it, you by all means drill a well first. Um, and most people will let you come in and drill a well before you buy that land, a test hole, because you have to know that you have the water, and then you can take a sample out of that and send it off to a lab and make sure that water is up to specs, because if it's not, you're going to have a terrible time growing if it's not good. Now, as far as interpreting those tests, it's Greek to me, but these guys, uh, B&B Consulting, they're out in California, so they deal with a lot of questionable water situations. Um, it's $100 an hour for the consulting, and it's usually $33 or so for a test, a water test. Um, no necessarily specific lab, but you want it for irrigation water quality, and um, it's well worth it to make sure that you can actually use that water for irrigation. It's well, uh, uh, very nice, Larry, well worth it to get the, anyways, moving on. <laughs> Not all soils are the same. There's clay, loam, and sand. And these are things that we need to consider. Um, all soils can be worked with, but it will just determine how much it takes to work with it. I definitely recommend a soil test before you buy a property. Um, let's see here. And I'm going to go into that a little bit here in this next slide. Okay, 
So here are a few things that we want to, to test for. Um, I'll mention that here. I don't think I have that. Okay, so that's on the next slide. Okay, so as far as soil on the property, okay, um, I want to know how many inches to bedrock. I'm sorry, I'm reading this. I should be reading this. This is the live one. Okay, so how many, uh, how many inches to bedrock? Um, my ideal is three feet. I don't really want to see anything less than that. Now, we were in a situation where it was less than that, and that's really not a good situation. You really want some depth to work with. Um, so I wouldn't do anything less than three feet if you have a choice. If you're in a situation where you've already bought land and you don't have that, we're going to have to work with it, right? But if you do have a choice, these are these, these type of perfect, these ideals that you want to be looking for. Um, another thing is, um, how high is the water table? This is another thing. Even though it might have great soil, there can be situations in where that water table might be high at certain times of the year and you can't grow anything with it because it's so saturated. Um, quick example, we went and saw a piece of land in Oklahoma and we drove out there and, and we called the guy and he said, tell us a little bit about the land. And he's like, well, it's a sandy loam, which is a, a fairly well-drained soil usually. Um, he's like, and the amazing thing is that I have five ponds on this property and they never go dry in the worst seasons. These things never go dry. They're amazing ponds. And I was like, hey, this sounds pretty good. Anyway, so we were driving around, driving around, and <clears throat> these ponds, you know, when I think of a pond that won't go dry during the year, I'm thinking of a fairly good-sized pond, right? Well, I start looking, and these ponds are like, you know, maybe, you know, the, the si maybe like 30 by 50. These are not big ponds, you know, when you're thinking of a pond. Like, man, how do these ponds stay wet so much? There was another one and another one, and they were full. He was right. Anyway, so we try, we try to turn the car around, and we start spinning. Well, come to find out, the water table there, it's kind of a slightly lower, even though it didn't look low, it had a clay layer, a fairly thick clay layer, and the water from this hill nearby came down and kind of ran under that, and it kept this clay hydrated, and the water couldn't drain. That's a big problem. So even though your top layer of soil might be a good quality, what's under it that's restricting it from draining out? And so we just turned around and, well, it was quite an endeavor. We got stuck, and we were pushing, and we almost not didn't get off the property. But these are things that you need to think about. How far to water? How far is the water table, and at what time of the year is, is it not going to be able to be growable? So that's that's a thing there. The next thing is, um, of course, that talk that that I guess that addresses it too. What is the soil's drain class? And we're there are different soil drain classes. There's A, B, C, and D. D is by far the worst. A is the best. It's like it just falls out type of idea. And the, I, the thing is, is that depending on your soil's drain class, how quickly it drains will determine things like how much drainage ditches will you need to build into your farm? How much earthwork are you going to need to do to make sure that your fields don't flood? Larry mentioned this by putting that uh, drain tile on his field. And these are not things that are unsurmountable. But these are things that when you think about working your budget, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to pay so much for land and then I'm going to grow on it. Well, what else has to be done to this? Because drain tiling land in a large way is very expensive and it takes specialty equipment. And so <clears throat> really what you can do to try to limit that expense, overall expense is going to be really important. Um, not unsurmountable, but think about that as a possible additional cost. The next thing here is 
um, how do things grow on it? Are there any dead zones? Okay, and there there are lands that you might go out there and the soil might look quote unquote okay, but there's like these bare patches. And the first thing that comes into my mind when I see bare patches where things won't grow or they grow very thinly, I'm very concerned about was there anything dumped there? Is there any type of toxicity here? Do I need to be concerned? And if that seems to be a, a situation throughout, you know, I, I want to see something. I don't, it doesn't necessarily need to be uniformity over the land, but I don't want to see bare spots because bare spots means there's something fundamental wrong with that soil where there might be uh, toxins there that you might not be able to account for. Soil tests would be able to, to help with that. Which is your next slide. Which is the next thing. A soil test. And um, if you are buying, I um, have some friends that live in um, Wenatchee, Kashmir, the whole west side of the Cascades. Is it Cascades in Washington? They're on the east side. Sorry, east side of the Cascades, which is a drier area. And they grow, there's a lot of orchards. Historically, it's been a high orchard area. Well, the problem with orchards is, is that, historically speaking, pesticides used a lot of heavy metals on those orchards. And so you want to make sure that, especially if you're buying land that has historical, is historical cropland and you know that the crops grown there had heavy metals applied to them, there might be a residual in the soil that you might not be able to get rid of. And so those are things that you will want to consider as well. And of course, there might be dead zones because of that in an orchard area, but not necessarily. Um, and then, of course, I have the test for heavy metals on there, which would be a residual from an orchard situation. And that's if you suspect it, right? If, if everything's growing well, if it's pretty uniform, I wouldn't necessarily be worried about it. But, yeah, the more history, the more that, that you can have on that land, the better decision you're going to be able to make if this is an appropriate place for you. Um, and uh, Kinsey Agricultural Service and Whitmar McConnell, they're both here. Uh, at the conference. These are their prices for that and their contact information. If you want to take pictures, these would definitely be guys that if I'm going to be taking a soil test, I'd want them to interpret, uh, interpret it and um, help me out making those decisions because the reality of the matter is is that we can't all be professionals at everything. We have to bring people alongside us to help make better decisions. Okay. Do you want to talk about this, or do you want me to talk about this? I can try. Okay. <clears throat> Slope. Slope is a big thing to take into consideration, partially because it can really complicate how you have things laid out if you have extreme slopes. Um, when you're doing uh, farm production, what is the percentage of slope on the property? And I think the ideal, you don't want to go over 5% five. Five slope starts getting out of that and it starts getting a little steep. <laughs> um, can you safely drive a tractor on a land? On the land? That's a really good question. I know and have heard of lots of people getting in problems with flipping tractors and you don't generally flip tractors on flat land. It can be done. It's probably possible, but you know, it's a lot less likely than if you're driving like this and you flip or like this and you flip. <laughs> or whatever. I'm not even actually allowed to drive on the little bit of slope that we have on our property. I get to drive the tractor on the flatland, and then everything that Tilly Allen's like, let me take it. Okay, no problem with me. You never said you wanted to do, anyways, we'll talk about this later. No. <laughs> does your land, what direction does the slope on your land face? 
that can have a big influence on how things run. Does it face north? Does it face south? Does it face east? Does it face west? Um, I think ours, well, ours is pretty much flat. But yeah. ideally, it, south... It's a bit of a north-facing on ours, but just very slight. So slight, it doesn't really make a difference. I think the south is probably preferred, right? It, it, a south-facing? I mean, it, it, it can be preferred. I know that... I don't know if this makes much of a difference or not, but I know that people that try to push, let's say, orchards or something, especially the stone fruits like peaches, apricots, things like that, especially when you're growing in the south, the idea is that you want to have a certain amount of days of cold so that those plants can recharge. I don't know. It's something about these types of crops, but the idea is that if you can keep them cold for long enough, um, they, they'll do better. But the thing that we have is in Oklahoma is that we have these killing frosts that come late in the season. Well, if it's cold and then it warms up and you never have a back killing frost, that's, you know, that's fine. Everything works out well. But if, if you're on a south-facing slope and you planted your orchard on a south-facing slope, and then it's going to warm up faster because that slope is, because it's facing the south, is going to warm up. So your trees are going to come out of dormancy a lot sooner. They're going to bloom, and then they have a more likelihood of being killed by a frost. And so if you have it on the north side, it's colder, it keeps them cooler, and hopefully keeps them dormant for longer until you get past that period where you're not going to have frost. I don't know how effective it is, but that's, what I, that's probably the only situation that I could think of where someone might want to have a north-facing slope, um, in, and especially in a northern context. In a, in a, sorry, in a southern context. In a northern context, I think it's pretty much always south-facing is primary. That makes sense to me. Are there hills around the land that would shade it in the wintertime? How much sun exposure do you get in the wintertime is probably another way of stating that question. Um, does the land drain easily with how it slope, or does the water tend to sit and congregate in areas? The, 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 the hills around it, we went to a farm, I think it was in Virginia, and this guy had, it was a beautiful land, but he had this hill to the south of him, a fairly large hill to the south of him. Well, in the wintertime, your sun's so low on the horizon, he basically would only get indirect sunlight all day. It was not a good situation because this hill was so tall. And so this is one of the things that you want to consider is that in the wintertime as well as in the summertime, in the summertime it wasn't such a big deal because it went over more, you know, overhead like this. But in the wintertime when that sun moves farther to the south, are you still going to have that full sun exposure uh, to your property? Wind protection. This is probably a bigger deal in Oklahoma and the Plains than other places. It's definitely a big deal for us. How much does the wind blow? How fast does it blow? How often does it blow? Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plains. And the waving wheat right. sure smells so sweet. So that's enough. something to keep in mind because wind can really stress out your plants. Not only stresses us out, but it can stress out the plants. So that's something to keep in consideration. Do you have hills or trees to protect you from wind? If you don't have these natural wind breaks, what other options are there? Um, we looked at this one piece of land that was completely exposed, uh, and the guys were like, it was only, it was almost literally behind our old house, like just over the hill. That was a bad piece and of actually, there's a video of this on here, I think. Oh, that's right, that's right. And, um, not of this exact situation, but Alan and Dad were kind of pushing towards... Desperate. We were desperate. Yeah, they were desperate. And they're like, this is such... You know, we could make this work. 
Arizona. It's a tree on the property, and it's just kind of like up on up on a little bit of a, a roll. So it's just like the winds come through there, and it's just like, and mom and I are just thinking, you know, we understand the convenience factor. It's just you know a five minute drive maybe. <clears throat> But this just this is not a nice place. The wind is is insane. And then the guys are talking, well, we could get telephone poles and put them up and stretch these wind barriers. And so we're imagining like this, you know, you see those driving ranges in the city that have these giant things. And mom and I are just like, you know, guys, can we like, thankfully, the perk test failed on that property, which we're getting to the perk test in this it failed and we didn't get the land, so we were very grateful because I we could just imagine the farm doesn't land. work and we've decided to convert it into a driving range. And that uh, let's would have just. On. Okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. Sore spots, you know. Uh, trees. So, do you have at least five acres of wood for heating? How important is privacy to you? I mean, these are literally questions that just pop up in my, our minds. Not all of them are important necessarily to everybody, but they were things that were important considerations to us. So I think that got us through our resources, internet tools to save you time. You start with the Google. Okay, Google Maps are fantastic when it comes to, um, what did we use the Google Maps for? We use, okay. <laughs> I mean, I know we, what I use Google Maps we for. We use the Google Maps to help us plot to know how far are we from these different urban locations where we might be selling to. That's what is the transit time between them? That's very important. And what are the roads like? And you can zoom in and you can tell a lot about, are, is there a chicken house here? Is there a factory here? You know, what's the situation here? They're just a great eye in the sky before you. I, I would not, if I was interested in a piece of property, I would not even go see it until I'd consulted Google Maps to kind of get a, a feel of the land and it's just a great resource. You can measure things on Google Maps. It's, it's a great res free resource for, for farm hunting. Why don't you talk about Okay, soil, soil web survey. This is, uh, this is a service, an amazing service provided by uh, the United States Department of Agriculture. Um, it is free. And Seth, they do have a Canadian version. I've used it. They have a soil web survey in Canada too. I don't remember the Google thing, I mean the address. But it's the exact same thing just for Canada. See here, what would it be? For, I'm not even going to try for Canada. .ca. Uh, .ca. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, so um, a great resource, and we're going to... Sean, if you weren't my friend, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't let you, but since you're my friend... Exactly where you are on it. Really? Repeat that into there. You come up here real quick and mention it so for our people on Audioverse can hear it. KML. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> okay, so the file type that Google Earth reads, Sean, just come up here. Okay, real. I'll try it. Okay. The file type that Google Earth reads is called a KML file. KMC or KMC. Or KMC file. And you can export the file from... You can download the KML file off, off the Web Soil Survey and then access it on Google Earth. So then you can be standing in a certain place and know exactly what the soil is like under your feet. Very good. Okay. <laughs> Did everyone get that? 
if, if you have cell service yes. and data. Yeah. Excellent. If you don't, contact Sean and he will maybe be, no, just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, ideal soil, the, the next one is the web soil survey. So, you, this is okay. your ideal soil profile. Yeah, so this is what we're going to be looking for um, in an ideal situation, and then we're going to show you how to look this up on the soil web survey. So parent material, loam or sandy loam, that's an ideal, that's a preference uh, that, that I like to see. A topical profile with no bedrock within 36 inches, that's that three-foot limit that I talked about. Um, one to three percent slope, I feel is ideal. Someone else might want slopey, but that's, that's what I'm shooting for. And then class drainage B or C. Okay, is what we're looking at, and then no flooding ever. Okay, this is a situation, and it's really nice with the soil web survey is that it actually will tell you if it has any historical flooding, whether it is a perpetual situation where you're always going to have flooding, whether it's uh, infrequent flooding, and then it will say no flooding. So it kind of takes you through those those three scales, and it's pretty downright accurate, actually. Uh, at least we found it very accurate. So, this is what the page looks like. Does it start playing? Oh, so you're going to click on that little green button. Did everyone see that? The little green button. Did you? Okay. So you're going to click on the little green button, and it's going to load the page. Okay? Can I pull along in this, Aubrey? I don't know. Maybe. I think you can. Uh... And then it's going to load, of course, the United States. Okay, in this situation. I don't think so. And you're going to go over to the address button and put in the address. If you don't have the address button, you can also zoom in to where you are. So uh, you just put in your, what is it doing? Aubrey, I, I don't know why I can't control this. Anyways, so in this I case, we're... Because it's in presentation mode. Do you want to take it out? Because when it's just a single file, I was able to pull through it, and that will be a lot faster. Okay, there we go. So, so we, it loads the United States, okay, and then you can put your address in there, or you can come up here and do the zoom buttons on the little feet. And so I'm going to zoom in to where we are in Oklahoma. Okay, and we're, we're getting down to where we are. Okay, so this is our property. And you come up to the top here and you do an AOI, which stands for Area of Interest. And you can either do a rectangle or you can do a polygon uh, option where, because not all land is perfect squares, right? So you, you can either square it out. And once you get that, it makes this little green, it throws this little uh, greenish net over the property. And then it tells you, it tells you a few things. It tells you that this is 22.4 acres it, uh, that you did. It, and then you can also do a polygon. That's just showing it. There's just those two different buttons there. Now, we're going to go up to a soil map, which is another one of the tabs up there. And it loads this page. And on the left-hand side here, it has all the soil types. And it has them, see those little orange lines? That's the, the soil type boundary lines. And sometimes those boundary lines mean uh, completely different soil types. Sometimes they just mean soil at a different percentage of slope. OK, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's a different soil, just a different percentage of slope. So we have. Uh, let's see here. We have three types of soils represented on this land, and it tells us the actual acreage of those soils. So, for instance, let's say when you're looking at land, might 
all of it might not be growable or primary growing land. So you want to know what the relationship is between the land you can actually use for growing and the land that's not usable for growing. And that's really great on here. So, um, and then we can come over here and we can click on the soil types. And it starts out and it kind of tells, uh, tells us the slope for this Kiwana fine sandy loam. Um, it tells me a map, uh, national map. Um, it tells me uh, elevation. Um, it tells me the mean annual precipitation uh, as far as how much land. It tells me uh, the average air temperature, frost-free uh, periods, and the farm class. And this says all areas are prime farmland. What tab is that, Alan? You see how it's the little red tab up on the top, kind of left-hand side? The first tab says AOI, area of interest. The second tab says soil. So you start out, you start out, oops. You start out in the first tab. You have to go to the first tab to, 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 to draw your net, and then you go to the second tab to create your AO, uh, to actually see, see the soil map. Then you click on the soil types on the left-hand side. Can you point out the soil types, Albert? You're going to click on those on the print there, and it's going to open up this profile of that soil. So going down the profile, it tells us a lot of information on in the first part, but then it starts to tell us um, the setting of the land, uh, land formation, land position, downslope, across slope. That's all for, you know, um, what's the word? Um, topography. And then uh, the topical profile down here, this one where my mouse is, tells us 0 to 8 inches, fine sandy loam, 18 to 16 inches, fine sandy loam, 16 to 64 inches, sandy clay loam, and 64 to 80 inches, fine sandy loam. So it goes, it gives you a profile of the soil, unless you hit bedrock, down to 80 inches, and then it will say bedrock below 80 inches, or something like that. So that's, this is where you can get that topical profile, so you know with, that you're within the three-foot limit, right? Then the next thing tells us about the percentage of slope, it tells, uh, tells us uh, the depth to restrictive layers, which could be clay, could be rock. Um, and then this says, of course, it's a well-drained soil. It tells us its runoff class is low. So it means that most water that gets onto the soil is not going to run off, where maybe a clay soil would have a higher runoff class. Sandy soils, the, the soil actually penetrates through the profile. It doesn't beat up and run off the land. So this land drains really well. And then down below that, it says frequency of flooding, none, frequency of ponding, because it's a high, uh, it's a high, uh, it's, a, it's a class, uh, is a class B drainage, the hydraulic, hydraulic group, it says it on the bottom there. That basically is why the frequency of ponding doesn't happen, is because it drains well. So this is an invaluable resource um, for, for a farmer that's looking for a new farm, because you get a tremendous amount of data that you don't have to be there to experience. If it says no flooding, it's not going to flood. I mean, it, it is very accurate. And uh, we've, we've used this on probably four or five different pieces of land when we were looking for land, and they are pretty spot on. Um, it's, it's amazing. Supposedly, they divide, the, the way this information came to be is that they divided up the project among counties, and then counties went out and basically surveyed their entire land by a, a surveying process and then they put it into this database and this there's very few areas except for military areas <laughs> that you have information on this media was brought to you by audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.